just a, I, I'm going to apologize. I'm just like, I'm a bundle of different vibes and I'm trying to find the right one. I apologize. I have some, I have some notes that are going to have to be toned down for broadcast. Let's just say, um, <laughs> it's one of those days. I mean, after my conversation yesterday, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that, that, that interview you did was, uh, chilling. Yeah. It's such an important take too, because I feel like with all this talk of like, oh my God, UK variant, uh, the virus is evolving. It kind of like is desensitizing people to the actual horror. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing the revised Federal Reserve forecasts once they incorporate understanding of the potential for mutation. I uh, <laughs> think we're pretty far from that still uh, no no the news <laughs> we'll see any any sort of economic reporting now is like chipper it's like well uh, they even had a coup and uh, look what the markets did s <laughs> <laughs> p 500 rises on rumors of coup um, <laughs> Welcome to the Death Panel. If you'd like to get extra episodes every week, please consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash Death Panel Pod. It helps support our work and you get access to all of the bonus interviews and all the extra episodes that come out every Monday. So Patreon.com slash Death Panel Pod. Plug aside, a lot has been happening this week. <laughs> that would be... Yeah, there's, there's a statement. Yeah. <laughs> Many things are year. happening. So earlier this week, as everybody was talking about the Georgia runoff and the election certification and, you know, whether or not Mike Pence was going to be a tie-breaking vote <laughs> for Trump to do a coup or what, like whatever, there were a lot of really horrible things coming out about our latest failures to contain the coronavirus pandemic. Like, for example, you know, we're we're coming in at. 3,900 plus deaths a day, multiple days in the past 10 days. Yep. That's a lot of people dying in a day. And we're now at the point, too, where it's people are even more explicitly than they have uh, done implicitly in the past saying, like, no, you we are turning this ambulance away. You are go we are choosing much more clearly and uh, explicitly that that you will you will not live. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. So that so so it's like I guess the only way that you we can apparently collectively recognize state failure uh, is if the state failure is happening in a building that everyone <laughs> like recognizes the state. So I kept wondering, like, maybe if we just dress up hospitals, you know, in like a, a tarp that looks like Congress, maybe then people will pay attention. Uh, yeah, like one of those bug bomb uh bug bomb tents that you just put over a building but it looks like the capital yeah are you saying this is essentially actually not a public health issue but an architectural issue that that we just need more neoclassical architecture to solve the coronavirus pandemic because if yeah. hospitals I mean, looked like neoclassical buildings then everything would be fine yeah well yeah. i mean it's like if, if if people have a problem seeing the state or seeing that like state failure <laughs> is in fact everywhere and that it actually like takes it literally now is like oh well i, I guess you know there's an armed in Insurrection, so uh, I guess we're in state failure territory now. It's like, 
Nope, we were in state failure territory in about what was it March? Yeah, um, <laughs> but but I think but I think it's like one, the the like the big question that like you see and it pops up in in all of these like moments of state failure, uh, which is like. Uh, oh well, this will no. This will be the turning point, right? Uh, you know, you you like uh, Republicans will see like no. Actually, it's you know they they've taken it too far, and like they're you know the the attempt to like uh cr- like foment like you know essentially like fascism in America. Like oh, this is like oh, you don't even know what like the consequences are, and now you finally have to see them in their material. It's like no, this is not a turning point <laughs> just as just as the fact that now it's routine that 3000 people die in a given day uh is not a turning point uh because it, like fundamentally you can see the way that uh, many members of the Republican Party reacted to this. It's like Ben Sass is like saying, like, you know, like the, the today just proves why, like, counter majoritarianism, you know, in our like in our <laughs> terrible, like malapportioned, like political institutions are, in fact, good. I mean, you can take anything away from uh, things like this. And yeah, there's like 45% of Republicans are like, you know, it's great that like far right militia people like went in and tried to like shoot up uh, Congress. Yeah, it's just so frustrating because I feel like the media narrative is totally shifted to this like play by play of the individual personal safety of elected representatives, which there's been none of that attention or or care for loss of life when it comes to all of the people who are vulnerable, who are poor, who are sick, who are elderly, whatever, who are just being exposed to extreme dangers right now, which I think you could argue that the average person who is a retail worker right now is in more daily danger than Congress members were in yesterday, despite the fact that the police were obviously doing their job and supporting the far right militia members. You know what I mean? I had a a reporter uh, like talk to me yesterday, just like off the cuff, like not for anything in particular. And uh, her her point was like, you know, she's like, it's so frustrating. You know, uh, reporters don't seem to like know, quote, what's going on. They can't use certain words to describe this like event. And I'm like, yeah. And in what sense is that really different from their the inability of reportage to really describe what's been going on for some time? Um, (laughs) And it's like it's like to say, okay, well, this number of people die uh, every day. It's like, yes, those little like bare facts uh, continue to be assembled and that's essentially what like the function of this transmission of information is but to say what is going on at some more fundamental level it, it actually helping people make sense of how all of these things uh fit together um that is not a thing uh, that's happening and so what 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 happens is that like the understanding of events just sort of lurches from crisis to crisis and it's like it it essentially now apparently takes like uh, you know effectively a takeover of you know the main legislative building in the entire country uh for there to be any recognition that like there's maybe a legitimation crisis right like it's not <laughs> it's not enough it's not enough for people to have have to be you know essentially turned away in great numbers from like sites of care it's not enough for workers to be asked to like enter essentially they're they're like houses of death right in meatpacking plants like it's not like those are all just sort of bare facts that like remain like disassembled and and, and in a sense like the 
the idea like, oh, this is this is now a turning point, like things are going to normalize after this just really shows you the way that uh, people who are charged with interpreting these things for us wholesale uh, view it, which is that like, no, this is just yet another event in a series of events, which are impossible to like uh, distill in any sort of way, rather than actually seeing like, oh, no, the legitimation crisis goes far deeper and is far broader than a bunch of essentially tourists with guns. Uh, you know, uh, you know, entering, entering the capital. So I guess my, I mean, my big concern ultimately is that, so, you know, I mean, this happened, this even happened on like a very weird, not, not weird, but pretty indicative week in, in some ways. Right. I mean, on fucking, uh, Tuesday, there was like the big, uh, Georgia Senate runoff elections with everyone, which a lot of, a lot of people in general, like whatever, like pinned a lot of their hopes on. Um, but these are like two guys, like both of the guys who win won both Warnock and Ossoff, uh, for example, ran on like improve access to affordable care, for instance, (laughs) right in the middle of it, like when actively like up to 4,000 people are dying a day, right? Like soon, I'm sure soon there will be like 3,900 is pretty fucking close. So, Mm -hmm. but like, okay. So in an environment like that, where, for example, like things are, things are so clearly falling apart, which I think is the thing that's going to be sort of the theme of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode, but things are so clearly falling apart that people who are not like showing up to the Capitol for like, conspiracy theorist demands for like QAnon shit or to like try and get like their favorite big boy baby president uh to like stay in power or whatever right like people who are not uh showing up for for like QAnon reasons the my my concern is that the way that this is getting sort of uh integrated into the the sort of like national understanding right Mm -hmm. is that like this type of action is in it by virtue almost of, of being done in the way that it did being easily laughed off as this like bunch of nut jobs or whatever, whatever kind of way that like it gets rationalized by, by like people to make sure that like, Oh yeah, we still believe in the power of the American state or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that, that very easily gets leveraged as like, that has a translative effect to whatever real important demands might be, uh, might be brought to Congress in the next like couple of years, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that if people get pissed off enough that that's something that happens for a good reason, It'll just make the uh, analogy. It'll be laughed off as well, yes. Right. I mean, like yeah, it's already. I had just read an interview today with uh, everyone's favorite David French, okay. uh, who's, <laughs> who's like you know of, of course being sought after for his opinions on the virtues of federalism and the uh, need for. <laughs> You know, returning power to look because, you know, we're so divided that the only solution is to further decentralize and reduce our capacity for central planning, which at a time where California is running out of oxygen, that's just uh, that's what you want to do. So thank you to Governing Magazine. Super. Yeah. We need more central planning now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Desperately. (laughs) There was a there was a fucking uh, story that like in the what is it in like Northern California and is it the Bay Area? There were ambulances. Yeah, in Santa Clara, there were ambulances waiting up to seven hours to put patients in a hospital from being picked up. That's insane. Well, it's important Mm -hmm. to remember too, like that that these delays that this triage pressure comes from a shortage of staff time as well mm-hmm. right yeah. like people are at their breaking point they are working and have been working crazy hours under horrific conditions mm-hmm. since february right when 
Donald Trump was elected, everybody worried that everyone working in media was just going to drop dead on the job. Right? Remember that? <laughs> they were all going to have heart attacks. Or right. Whatever, everybody yeah. was going to have a heart attack, blah, 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 whatever. We're so worried. It turns out they just, like, I guess, decided they were going to, like, start jerking off at work, like Jeffrey Tubin, and that was a great <laughs> coping strategy for them. No, did- they've been jerking off at work. <laughs> <laughs> that is what they do. Notably, they. <laughs> Notably, though, that uh, that didn't uh, encourage uh, positive public sentiment for, uh, you know, passing single payer to make sure that the poor journalists <laughs> get, get health care. But, you know, it's like suffer work related distress injuries yeah. from Trump covering <laughs> Trump for four years. And I'm not saying that it hasn't been hard to do that or stressful, but um, being a journalist is nothing like being a nurse in an emergency room. It's mm-hmm. nothing like being a hospital orderly is nothing about about like being a nurse practitioner or a resident or a doctor or right now a med student or a nursing student. Nursing students are like practicing nursing in school, right? Mm-hmm. These are conditions which no one should be subjected to under like fair labor, right? Yeah. This is unsafe for people. This is unsafe for a giant pool of talent of really, really well-educated healthcare workers, many of whom have a lot of student debt too on top of that. You know, why is it that that we can't um we can't seem to like understand that this misallocation of resources, which is making the pandemic worse, right, could be simply fixed. Through coordination, communication, and and a very <laughs> and a little simple central commitment. planning. Yeah, a little a little commitment to planning, sharing, and prioritizing public health infrastructure. Yeah. It's not I'm, like we're asking for a very complicated shift in priorities here. It's 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 really not. Well, it's I mean, it's also telling like the situation in Santa Clara. Neighboring counties have not yet experienced that level of stress on their systems, but they are, quote unquote, on guard for when this could occur. It's like, excuse me, like you're saying that neighboring counties have excess capacity that could maybe I continue to be impressed by the rhetorical flourishes uh, or gymnastics, I guess, that allow people to like continue to think that this is not an indication of a fundamental flaw in like our healthcare system or the political economy of health in America and indeed like uh, abroad because um, Mm -hmm. you know I don't don't think that true socialized medicine really exists in Mm -hmm. any country that I can identify I mean just look at (laughs) there was like uh there were like reports today that everyone's everyone's like really upset uh, in France because France hired McKinsey to do their vaccine rollout, <laughs> and of course they've only do, they've only done like five thousand of doses total. Oh so like, great job, guys. But like, okay, anyway, we all the, need to make but, a global UN pact to stop hiring McKinsey. To stop, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Twenty twenty one peace accords. No, but um, but I I think you know, look, but again, like you know not not saying that socialized medicine like true in a true form the the way that at least we envision it exists really anywhere today um but i it's very uh let's say ironic to see like the capitalist political economy of health in the united states go into a period of obvious like market induced rationing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right i mean it's not like cuz you know you, you could say oh well this is like it's a profound crisis you know, like no one, no one expected, quote unquote, the like the the systems to be so overburdened or, or supply chain issues with oxygen, uh, this, this and that. And it's like, okay, but fundamentally, since this began, what have people been talking about? But like, 
flatten the curve, right? Which the whole idea <laughs> of flatten the curve is like the idea of not overburdening hospitals. No one has been doing policy to do that. No one has like to actually flatten the curve. No one has been doing uh, policy to give people like the the material supports that they would need to survive this fucking pandemic our healthcare system is just like continuing to do its regular thing which is just you know innovate yeah, continues to sure. innovate innovate in terms of like how to innovate how to, in the way how to that, use process, profits basically yeah, but that yeah selective pressure is applied on viruses which then also innovate to become you know more dangerous to the general population, yeah. right? right? No, and that's that's the real that's the real irony of the uh, socialized medicine or centralized planning uh, applied to health is a death panel. What you're going to start having decisions made where they're going to just say, you know, grandma doesn't deserve to live. Well, what the fuck is happening in California other right. than literal death panels, which are being released as directives from the governor? saying, listen, you got to be really careful with how you use your oxygen because not everyone deserves the oxygen Yeah, because I mean, we don't have enough. What the fuck? Yeah, That's I mean, the we, death panel right there. Right, capitalism yeah, is the death. It's an obvious point, but capitalism is the death panel and healthcare for profit is its chief architecture. Yeah. Not mm -hmm. metaphorical. Important no. to note. Yeah. Not at all metaphorical. Yeah, exactly. We're the death panel. We're the authority on death paneling in America. So yeah, we're, we're trust not, us we're when not we explicit say. about this enough. Yeah, we're, we're the certification agency. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we provide exactly. the accreditation. <laughs> if you want the seal of approval, you have to go through us. We should start issuing certifications, you know, like put up eligibility requirements on our website. Like this is what you have to These are the standards you have to meet of like true ghoulish neglect for human life in order to be considered a certified death panel, in which case you get access to, I don't know, like a demonstration program for Medicare at the I don't know. It might take us a little too long to issue those certifications. I think there might be a backlog, backlog. and there might lead to yeah, rationing. Yeah. So I don't it's know. Gonna, it's uh, going to be a nightmare. <sighs> In a way, like, so, yeah, the, I mean, the, from the beginning of this pandemic, the concern is that, uh, yeah, we'll run out of hospital beds as a lot of hospitals have, like ICU beds will run out of, uh, like capacity to, um, to, uh, to treat people that obviously discounts, you know, one thing that I haven't seen a breakdown of, which I am sure is largely because this data there's there's uh the state doesn't have an incentive to collect uh this data exactly um as we'll talk about in a minute with uh getting into a deep dive on west virginia but like of covid cases for example like i'm i want to know what the like the actual insurance breakdown is right like of of like covid cases and people who either get or sick with or or um die of covid like who's on Medicare or Medicaid, who are on like private insurance, who's on, who's like totally uninsured, who doesn't, who's like on a exchange plan. Cause like at the end of the day, it remains remarkable to me that again, like someone like, uh, people like Asaf or Warnock can like run on quote unquote, like improving access to affordable care. Like literally how, like we don't, uh, like we don't, meaningfully have if you think about like what that what that breakdown would show right like we don't meaningfully have a coherent healthcare system actually in the united states mm -hmm. we have like mm -hmm. a network we have a dis not even a network we have a distributed clustering of companies some of those companies like private companies like for the most part some of those private companies uh you know employ healthcare workers and physicians right others of those companies are financial institutions that we refer to as insurers 
right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who like handle handle payment for it? Like it's it's a complete mess. The complete lack of coordination, basically. Right, and and that's a good point, Artie, because the way that our healthcare finance models are so segmented right now. If you had more data about where the proportion of COVID cases were following in terms of um, healthcare coverage, right? If you're saying like, okay, well, 25% of deaths are people on Medicaid. Uh, 35% of deaths are people on Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, 10% of deaths are people on Medicare. 15, you know, like this gives you a really interesting breakdown of what populations and what access is to like what access to resources those various populations have, which populations and what resources are contributing to greater morbidity and mortality with COVID, right? And and this is this this is the ridiculous thing because obviously, you know, we can we can decide that we want to continue to treat health like a commodity and prescribe these um, arbitrary market controls to the allocation of health resources, right? And ultimately, what we're seeing throughout the course of this pandemic is that that is an incredibly inefficient and uh, mortally dangerous way of distributing resources, correct? Mm -hmm. I think that's like objectively true all of the time in healthcare, but it's particularly (laughs) visible at the moment, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think this is a great time to sit down and have a serious discussion about what consolidation has done to healthcare in the United States, how something like an American NHS could be a really strong tool to combat um, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also to try and reduce some of these maybe disparities in in COVID uh, deaths, et cetera. But no, we're we're very busy talking about, you know, making sure that Moderna return r- retains the right to its uh, intellectual property. Oh, right. Right. And, it, and it's I think the you know, the the really nettlesome thing that is is already emerging is that like, you know, the the, the conventional way of describing or the way that people are are made to like see w- what state failure is, it's like, oh well, the state can I guess just finance or underwrite the the sort of the private accumulation of wealth through the production of these vaccines. But when it comes to actually being able to combat the the pandemic, it looks like the state is failing, and, and that's why you get idiots like Connor Friedersdorf saying like, oh, it's you know, central planning is like the reason for. Uh, for this mess. It's like, no, it's the fact that public health in this particular system is because we don't have a, you know, a national health service or anything like it. It's hived off entirely institutionally from anything like individual medicine. And so we have essentially all of these institutions trying to do the work of public health, but essentially operating within the framework of individual medicine. So it's the absence of central planning that's that's doing the work here. Exactly. Right. I mean, like we haven't even uh, had to put, you know, there, there was like the big news, for instance, earlier this week that uh, Haven shut down, for example, right. which was the big uh, collaboration <laughs> between JP Morgan Chase, um, the uh, oh, fuck, what's Warren Buffett's company called? Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Berkshire, Hathaway. Ber- Berkshire Hathaway and uh, Amazon. And, you know, all the, all the news coverage is like, oh, I guess they failed. To, they couldn't innovate hard enough. Yeah, I guess they couldn't yeah. innovate hard enough. They could. They failed to uh, innovate. Uh, in healthcare and a, a couple of things about that one you know one of the reasons we haven't even like really brought that up uh recently is like obviously they were either going to fail or they were going to just become basically like another one of these uh kind of just like a, another entity in this 
uh, morass of healthcare companies that we talk about all the all the time already. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, like of course they fucking failed because they they were never really about like innovating in healthcare. They were about innovating in how low they could make their employer health coverage they provided. Get. Yeah. Um, right. and, uh, and on top of it, like even you could, you can, this just shows you can lasso together fucking chase and amazon and berkshire hathaway and even with these things which you you like no, no matter of capitalism no matter what right. they thought about uh how how their uh like economies of scale or whatever were going to function in terms of uh like disrupting the healthcare market <laughs> right they're fucking chump change compared to like the the actual like regulatory regulatory power of like basic medicare for example which like a cms rule changes and like the entire industry has to slightly shift around it and that doesn't even and currently because we don't have medicare for all in this country like cms only directly regulates like they, they change a rule and it changes like you know what is it like 30 percent or something uh I like the so. rule so changes that, that make it so that about 30 percent of the total population ish you know uh like in, in order to like get reimbursed by medicare you have to uh you have to like abide by these Medicare and Medicaid, you have to like abide by, you know, X and Y rule or whatever. And that like just that amount changes the entire industry. So like if you actually think about, yeah, again, like what we could do with coordinated power, what we could do with like <laughs> actually having, I don't know, a single entity we can leverage as opposed to saying like, oh, well, a lot of a lot of pu- people are fucking dying. Who do we lobby? Do we lobby McKinsey? Do we lo- lobby the public health department of our state? Do we right. lobby Blue Cross Blue Shield? Like it these are all the this distribution of of uh this yeah distribution of responsibilities as distribution of power is like is uh i don't know like a, a fucking exigent counterinsurgency program practically mm-hmm. right i mean and <laughs> and for the record according to the 2017 uh health re- insurance coverage in the united states report medicaid is 19.3% and medicare is 17.2% so it's a uh, little higher than 30% even, which go. makes your point even more salient, I think. And that, that is, I think, the, all of this sort of illustrates what's missed by just treating the constitu- the the sort of the most natural constituency for, say, Medicare for all. Not even talking about NHS at this point, but just let, you know, just leave it at Medicare for all. Like not seeing the uh, potential for constituencies that exist, you know, far beyond people who just have unstable health insurance or don't have health insurance or have, you know, Medicaid or something like it, the, the potential constituencies for this is already you've made the point, you know, many a time, you know, so much broader. If you think about like what states could do if they didn't have to pay for, right. mm-hmm. you, oh know, Medicaid. If, 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 you know, if the largest share or the second largest share of their budgets were not devoted to doing this program. I often think about like a significant chunk of um, Pennsylvania's Medicaid, I think is, is, uh, paid for by lottery revenues. So if you think about all of the lottery revenues, you know, what can right. we do? I don't know. Maybe, maybe stabilize the uh, struggling Pennsylvania state system of higher education, which is like the smaller uh, colleges, not Penn State, but the smaller public colleges, which used to be teachers' colleges and are really, really important for a lot of small communities. Which is um, to say nothing of federally funding those too, but continue. Yeah, right. I mean, to say, yeah, to say nothing of that. But, but I mean, that's just like, think of all of the potential natural constituencies and you realize that like there is a huge... Uh, op- move set set of like movement interest organizational like opportunities, um, for Medicare for all. But you have to think about it in a different way. You have to think about it not merely as an issue of fi- of, of of health finance for 
uh, patients, but you have to think about it as a as a matter of like state capacity for all different kinds of people in different sectors. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, such a good point, Phil. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. To, like, really, really good point. And I've been thinking about this a lot, which is that. I mean, even if you if you think about like a lot of the different uh, when when you speak about like constituencies, for example, that uh, that could be um, mobilized for something um, like Medicare for all, it's actually very interesting because I mean, think about okay, so uh, you know, as, as you bring up, for example, uh, you know, a biggest line item on on every state budget is uh, is healthcare is like Medicaid spending, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much like pretty much without I, I think without. Um, uh, without exception, basically, yeah. right? It's it's a huge, huge expense for states. So, uh, so yes, since states can't deficit spend, for example, um, Medicare for all takes uh, could like take Medicaid expenses um, off the table, and, and essentially without really changing uh, anything about how much like taxes are collected at the state level or whatever, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, like you've you've freed up a huge uh, a huge amount of money on on the on a state line on. But like beyond that too, if you just think about historically. The way that like certain um, certain populations of people have been sort of like uh, sort of taken care of, uh, not really like as I'll get into, not really, but like um, have been sort of like hived off. It does. I, I mean, I mentioned counterinsurgency earlier. It almost does like read like a, a counterinsurgency uh, hit list. I mean, if you think about it, like okay, Medicare. Like we pass Medicare, we es- essentially remove the sixty-five uh, and older constituency uh, from. The group of people who would be more likely to make a political demand for Medicare mm-hmm. for all, for example, there's complications to that. Obviously, Medicare, uh, med- current Medicare doesn't cover long term care, for example. And so because and that falls to states and Medicaid sucks. and it's still yeah. and it's yeah. And there are huge problems. Uh, right. Yeah. And there are huge problems with it, too. And there are people are actively privatizing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, for Medicare Advantage plans, like all that, all that. Which shit. is just further segmenting that population. But, right. Too. But, but so like, uh, I mean, I, I, w- I want to get to that. But first, I want to just say like. So if you think of Medicare, that hives off uh, people who are 65 uh, and older. The Biden plan, which is like 60 and older, uh, like to lower the Medicare age to 60, um, would would like hive off a segment of the population uh, further. And it's like very funny because even like Hillary Clinton wanted to take it down to 55. Right. (laughs) Um, But the but so then you have uh, what else? Like you've got uh, like the V.A., Remove mm-hmm. the right. remove the armed forces from the political demand constituency. Hmm, smart idea. Uh, SSDI and SSI. You either uh, remove the disabled from uh, making the political demand, or you make it so difficult to get the benefits that many people literally die waiting to get them. Um, and the most ridiculous thing about this, if you think about it as a way to demobilize people from asking for a socialized medicine system or as a way to demobilize people from like asking for something like Medicare for all or an American NHS, is that like they don't even seem to under like the, the current constituency of American power, like like of American power, like the current people who are who are in uh, in government don't even seem to understand the uh, sort of like counterinsurgency value of these programs i mean why would you want to cut va spending threadbare after spending decades training guys to be fucking kill guys in iraq and afghanistan <laughs> uh and like how to attach fucking like car batteries to people's nipples right I mean, like it's the idea of population maintenance <laughs> you gotta give those guys like- health care <laughs> We don't care about veterans in the United States. They care about giving veterans the bare minimum required in order to keep them from becoming a politically motivated, active vocal right. constituency for their right. own rights. Well, but, and that's no, but what the, happens. And, but, this, but this is the thing. And so like even with even like you 
cut you cut down the the budget of uh of like the va and you make it like really you like make it so that there are a ton of uh like there are huge structural problems with it um you you constantly are fear-mongering about medicare uh the medicare trust fund quote-unquote going bankrupt even though congress <laughs> can just write a fucking check practically and say like okay good we're like we're, we're good this this funding is there right like all of all of these things it's sometimes i just wonder like how okay like uh all, all of these programs, all the, all the things that do again, you know, catch these populations of, are, are intended to quote unquote catch, you know, significant portions at least of these populations who you might be worried would politically agitate for something like socialized medicine, right. Who might actually, who you might be worried would form a coalition. Um, and then you have an event like the coronavirus uh, crisis happened where almost 4,000 people are fucking dying every single fucking day. Like, yeah. How do you not even realize that, like, I don't know, maybe maybe you should be really worried about what the fuck happens if you don't pass Medicare for all. Right. You know, it's a research question that I would like to see answered is if someone could look at, you know, this isn't going to happen for a while because it's going to take time for this information to come to light. But, you know, year, two years from now, when we start having data on the percentage of coverage in the population for 2020, 2021, 2022, probably. It would be interesting to see how that percentage shifted after COVID, right? Like if 56% of the population pre-COVID was on private insurance and you've got 19% of the population on Medicare, the way that deaths are being apportioned right now, I bet you you would probably see a shift in that balance. Right. Because you're going to see the efficacy of these coverage areas in the health outcomes of those populations. Right. And I would be very curious to see over a number of years how this actually changes the market landscape. Right. And it shows to me now that we have the unique opportunity for intervention to give people coverage so that they can have health outcomes commiserate to their like rights as human beings to survive. And, and this is the thing is like this is not, you know, the uh, you know, you, you can actually deal with this episode or this instance of state failure, you know, without having to, like, you know, wring your hands about like political culture, do any of the sort of, you know, nominal like pundit pundit brain like things like worry about like, uh, you know, identity. Like, no, <laughs> like this is actually pretty. E- this is from a f- sort of functional like institutional perspective. This is relatively easy. You know, yeah. it's yeah. like it's not it's not a to, compare it to this. Compare it to like flooding the Tennessee Valley, displacing <laughs> populations, right? Moving them off, forcibly moving them off of their land with eminent yeah. domain and then filling in the valley for the TVA. I mean, mm-hmm. this is like uh you know, it is the equivalent of just like um we are now going to um uh, what is it? Uh, oh yeah, uh, uh, get, get, alleviate all of this worry from from your mind. You know, Phil, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. <laughs> we don't Sorry. not do things because they're not not easy, but not because they're not hard. <laughs> Wow, I can't believe you got there on the first try. Yeah, it's almost like, but it's almost like uh, it's as easy as you know just cutting everybody a $2,000 check. Look, it isn't like something we wouldn't rather not do, but it's closer to something we wouldn't can't not do. (laughs) We wouldn't care as much about not doing it together. Oh my God. (laughs) That's the American way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> can you please put American me on NPR? Way. Can I be an NPR commentator now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I feel like I that think needs just, to go on a hat. You just aced your exam, Phil. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think you, you, you graduate uh, directly from NPR to CNN, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, okay, speaking of the American way, though, can we please talk about West Virginia? Yeah, I was just going to say, oh, my God, it seems to me that there are just, you know, certain places in the United States uh, like West Virginia. Yeah, they're more American than the rest. Culturally speaking, there has been a process of of just writing off the entire population of that state as dispensable. Um, the the land and the people have been marked for extraction. Uh, no matter how much they technically contribute to the GDP, that it's becoming increasingly clear that, for the most part, the governor of West Virginia just sees his state as a gigantic resource, well, and he wants to make sure that it remains that way. And I and I want to say something. This so what we're about to uh, to talk about has been in West Virginia local news. Uh, since like you know August September like since, since the, yeah. yeah since since like the end of the summer and into the fall and so in a way what what we're about to talk about I think personally I see this as like a microcosm of like every fucking problem that we have seen in the coronavirus uh, crisis and the response in the United States um, uh, really. But before we get into it, basically I do want to, I do want to say like, basically this is we're we are coming late to this. Uh, and I know that this is happening. This is definitely similar things are happening in, in other States, but I think this is like a really good example of the kind of thing at a, a, a smaller, like a, at a local level in the subnational governments that is happening in the U S right now. Um, mm-hmm. And also just to, as a, as a second thing and, as an aside if you go on like the new york times Mm -hmm. as i did and look for this stuff it Mm -hmm. is not there like this stuff Mm -hmm. this stuff is not being covered at a national level everything that we're all the sources that were uh that we looked at for the stuff that we're about to talk about is all from fucking like local reporting and local tv stations and all this stuff all the media that like we know is dying throughout the u.s basically Yeah, I mean, what is going on right now in the state of West Virginia is just a, it's like a template, you know, you've just got all of the factors. So Governor Jim Justice and other state officials, his COVID czars, et cetera, et cetera, have decided to, um, starting in August, they started releasing their own map, which was based off of a Harvard map. So it gave it sort of this veneer of official uh, it gave it an official look, except for if you compare the Harvard map and the West Virginia map at any one time, they do not match up. They they took this uh, like mapping and reporting uh, schema, right? A tool that was essentially developed with the intention of uh, making something that, you know, again, could be like used across states or whatever. It could be used in, in a pretty broad um, context to get an actual picture of like how common transmission was like place by place. Right. And they, but instead of actually just using it, they just like changed variables <laughs> all over the, the place basically. And they changed the parameters. Yeah. They, right. The crucial issue is that they changed both um, the minimum and maximum thresholds for allowing certain things to be opened and closed. These cutoffs of if we hit X percentage, schools need to be closed. If we hit X percentage, indoor dining needs to be closed. So they changed those thresholds. And in conjunction with that, they also changed the way that they were counting the positivity rate. So they've changed both aspects of determining safety for the state. 
right. county so by county. Essentially, they've kept the graphic design of the Harvard model and thrown out everything else. Right. And I mean, one of the problems is, is that, you know, again, back to this issue of like, it's not the problem is not central planning, but a lack of central planning (laughs) from state to state. Every state is using different ways of counting, right? There is no consistent way for saying, you know, New York is at X positivity rate and uh, West Virginia is at X positivity rate. Well, they're using, it's likely that they're using different standards, right? West Virginia is, is a state which is currently um, basically getting their positivity percentage as the percent of positive tests out of the total number of tests taken, right? And that ultimately presents a lower number than if they were trying to get the percentage of positive cases in the total population, Mm -hmm. right? So someone could take multiple tests in a week and they could test negative five times in one week. And another person could take one test a week and test positive, let's say. That person's positive test would be weighted against the other five negative tests. And that's the way that West Virginia is counting. It is it is weighing the total number of positives versus the total number of negatives, which again if you're getting tested multiple times a week, as some people are, there were county officials who even bragged about it, who are quoted in articles being like, I don't care what I have to do to get schools open. I'll get tested three times a week. Well, yeah. And they're sharing stuff on Facebook saying like, go get tested if you're not symptomatic or like if, you know, if you don't think that you have it, go get tested to make sure that we can like drive the, drive the, uh, case percentage down. Right. So they've yeah. intentionally changed yeah, they've, the system. Basically. They've changed their metrics uh, into one of the most arbitrary ways of, of formulating this data possible. And then they're it, setting benchmarks, which are, again, different from the public health recommendations. And I would also just say, like, this is a really egregious case of this, but scratch the surface, which I, I've been looking for, you know, reporting on this across a bunch of different like local contexts, and there's not that much. But you scratch the surface of any sort of like local plan and these color coded, smart looking right. documents, you will see a profound amount of arbitrariness. And mm-hmm. it, you know, to the extent that there's any sort of meaning behind some of these metrics, it it follows the you know the classic like. I don't know, sometimes people call it Goodhart's law, which is that like once everybody recognizes that it's a a number as a target, it ceases to be a meaningful reflection of the thing it's trying to measure. <laughs> right, and it's right. like the, and, and that's and that's that's happening in West Virginia and then some because then it's just like, well, uh at some point it's almost as if everyone recognizes that no one's really paying attention <laughs> and no one really and there's just like a lack of real meaningful caring about uh about this which right you know that's that's sort of the disturbing uh aspect of it. it's almost like no like they don't care it's almost like they don't care that people know that it's just made up i mean they're just <laughs> right, they're they just yeah. presenting the rosy picture which people are hoping for well i mean they, right? the like west virginia politicians like state and local politicians have been explicit uh, especially and the governor has been explicit that like these decisions these tweaks to the formula were made in order to uh get things like schools and sports uh like open as quick like reopen as quickly as possible 
Right. right. I mean, they have been, they have, yeah, they've made like no bones about this, which is, um, we, we mentioned like, I'm like, this is almost certainly happening, uh, in like a, a lot of, uh, in a lot of other places. Um, but it is, I think uh, as a case study, essentially, this is extremely telling because they're very, again, yeah, they're very open about it. Um, but beyond and beyond the, like, let's say like, you know, B mentioned the, the problem with the way that they're counting tests in the first place, which is, you know, if you're encouraging, if you're literally encouraging for purposes of reopening people to go and get asymptomatic tests so that you drive the like percentage uh, positivity rate down and you're counting each test as a test as opposed to counting the percent uh, population positivity rate by what I would argue is a much more obviously clear metric, which is by, by the person, by the individual, because, yeah. uh, you know, you can get it's like it's like saying uh, like because to, to me that that process of people saying like oh i can just go get multiple negative tests or whatever to help and make sure that like my school my kids school can reopen soon again <laughs> is like the equivalent of like logging into a different ip address or something to like hammer an online poll over and over again right this is this is about how yeah. like logical that is but the but then on top of it that the thing that we brought up in the in the very beginning which is taking these metrics and then saying like literally just like sliding the scale upwards to say like, well, we could just reopen er a lot earlier uh, than that. Like we don't have like we, we don't have to like follow the follow the format, et cetera, um, of the of this tool that we're using. Like I want to be explicit about how different the tool like how different mm -hmm. the the metrics are that they're using. Right. So for example, it's like, you know, a county can be uh, green, yellow, uh, orange or red, et cetera. Um, those all co correspond to different uh, case uh, case loads, basically. So your basic terror threat level model, right? Yeah, exactly. Your basic terror threat level model. So in uh, in a county that's green, for the Harvard model, mm -hmm. the model they took in the Harvard model that they took, that means uh, a, a green county means there's only one case per one hundred thousand residents, right? Mm -hmm. So um, of COVID nineteen, right? Pretty minimal for, community for a, transmission. For a, yeah, for a county labeled green on the map uh, in the Harvard in the Harvard, um, map, uh, basically mm -hmm. as, as taken Virginia took that off the shelf and they like adjusted the case, uh, the, you know, the, the metrics upwards and said, okay, let's, let's make that, uh, seven cases. <laughs> like let's just say green is now seven cases in a hundred thousand. Anyone who knows anything about like uh, basic math, that is a 700% increase <laughs> <laughs> in cases. Mm -hmm. Um, and for, let's say like a yellow County, um, so, you know, slight, slightly up in the Harvard metric, um, it was 10 cases mm -hmm. per 100,000, um, whereas West Virginia took that and they adjusted it to 15 out of 100,000. And it just <laughs> kind of like goes up on top of that. Mm -hmm. When that was not satisfactory, the governor acted unilaterally to add a new color on top of green, yellow, orange, red. He's just trying to express added, himself, Artie. He, he just really loves color. He took, yeah. a bunch of in here. he took a bunch of counties that were previously orange and red, as in they were past the cutoff of when schools and shit could be open. And he said, well, those ones are gold now. It's an <laughs> and they can decision. reopen. I'm not even making this up. I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, and, and they're I mean, saying they're saying we're not fudging the numbers. We're just trying to make sure that the them. system is working as uh, it should. Yeah, no, right. You well, have, he, so this and, is the thing. This is a critical distinction. It yeah. is not about fudging the numbers. Like, like when it comes to like fudging some of this data, it's actually 
fairly hard to do, but it's incredibly easy to just set the targets in a different way because that's where the public right. policy is. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, and they're also just being, you know, there are these small changes which you can generate very reasonable excuses for, right? Like, uh, for example, the one thing that that the state of Virginia or West Virginia has done has decided, okay, we're going to just sort of change the cutoff for what data is included in a week. So it used to be that they were including data up through Friday when they released reports on Saturday. Then they shifted um, to change it so that the cutoff time for final data was Thursday at midnight. And, uh, you know, that was and that would basically still be reported on Saturday. And those were reports that were determining if the following Monday school could be open or not. And Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a huge difference, right? But it's just enough to create a little bit rosier of a picture because, you know, people are more likely to get tested during Monday through Friday than they are on Saturday and Sunday. Well, and also, like, on top of all of this, like, goalpost shifting, right, which, again, is done for these very explicit, like, explicit political reason of keeping... Like they, the point is that they did this to keep schools open, not for any mm-hmm. safety or health reasons, not for any actual, no, not for any real reason other than a like that they were motivated to keep schools open. Right. That's right. The, that mm-hmm. is one of their that is one of their main things. Schools and businesses of other kinds, but a lot of it is is down to schools. Um, the, like we, you know, we mentioned, for example, they, you know, it's like difficult to get rid of this data, et cetera. But and and you know. It, 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 uh, so like ultimately what you do is you like change your model. One of the things that they do do in addition to counting this in a bad way and changing the sliding scale of where things are presented as like uh, at like at what barrier like things are presented as a problem or not is essentially throwing out uh, data in the form of. So, for example, like in nursing homes, in prisons and other uh, carceral institutions in in West Virginia, people, whether they are incarcerated people or people who are like residents of nursing homes or long term care facilities um, are pretty much just not present in the data. Uh, If they Mm -hmm. are like a facility is is rounded down to like what like if there's a case in there or like whether there's one case in there or like 80 cases in there, it's counted as like one individual Mm -hmm. until August 17th of of, uh, last year. Cases among staff of those uh, like in those institutions were uh, were counted as half of an individual (laughs) each. Um, just like, again, for no reason given other than they, they said, uh, these people are quote unquote, not part of the community. Um, and they were saying that not only of like the, the staff, which is patently absurd, but also Mm -hmm. saying that of, again, people like people who are incarcerated, which if you've listened to, uh, like us talk about like the paper incarceration disseminations about how, uh, how, how prisons and other carceral institutions, uh, like literally are drivers of spread in communities. Um, and if also generally you're just a fucking human being who thinks it's ridiculous to like, I, it is disgusting to me to, to say like, okay, those people are not part of the community. You've already, you've already Ugh, so disgusting. put these people in a carceral institution and like, uh, and fucking like warehouse them. And now you're saying they don't, they don't even fucking count. Right? I mean, this like is they don't show up in your numbers because they're not the community, whatever the fuck that means. Maybe one of the most glaring examples of the sort of fantasy logic 
of COVID statistics right now, it's not, it's like what Phil's saying. It's not that it's like, oh my God, they're reporting fake numbers that they're making up. Right. It's like with polling, right? The data is, is showing uh, one thing, right? And it's showing that because of the way it's being framed, collected, presented, right? It's, it's important to understand that, that numbers are not inherently apolitical, that well, the, yeah. I mean, they also don't speak for themselves. They don't right. speak for itself. I mean, someone has to make it speak. Right. Exactly. And the framing of of this is in keeping with the political positions which the state's leadership has previously taken prior to collecting the data, and they are presenting it to support their political positions, which is that their constituents are disposable, it, that their constituents are. Um, not worth taking public health measures to protect. Yeah. And this is this is actually something we said in our uh, interview with Nathan, which is like, even if you take the really gross and I, I don't advocate doing this, um, but like you can take the really gross uh, e- economist tool of like calculating the value of a statistical life, which is, I think, you know, around seven million dollars uh, in the United States, the way that's calculated. But like if you take that implicit valuation and then you look at what um, you know, these people are sorry. Doing, how low they, was it? Sorry. Seven million. I, it's, I mean, okay. it, it yeah. technically there's a range. Um, the <laughs> office management and budget says that the value of statistical life could be between 1 million and $10 million. Jesus um, Christ. and yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of debates. Like, should you adjust it for age? Should older people be worth less? Blah, blah, blah. But I mean, so I don't advocate doing that necessarily, but, right. uh, <laughs> but if you look at what the amount of death people are willing to or uh, public officials are willing to tolerate um, their implicit valuation of human life is actually quite a good deal lower. Right. Um, <laughs> I would say probably even lower than a million dollars because mm-hmm. it's very evident that um, we don't actually think that uh, like life saving or even, you know, you don't even have to use the VSL. It's like just saving hospital capacity. Right. right. Simply, mm-hmm. simply like reserving like hospital capacity and trying to like, like preserve uh, hospital beds or something like that. Like if you look at these decisions, like implicitly just the not even the, the statistical um, I- implicit valuation of life, but the the more explicit, like moral valuation of life here is quite low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's that's why I was saying like it just it's. Certain places like West Virginia, they're just populations which have been marked for extraction. I mean, you've seen this with other uh, environmental crises. You've seen this with like coal companies presiding over horrible accidents in the state of West Virginia and then blaming it on human error of the individual workers. Or uh, you have DuPont (laughs) DuPont, uh, poisoning people with Teflon, poisoning their air, their water, their animals, their children, and, you know, spending more money to cover it up on like legal fees than they're going to ever spend on medical monitoring. You know, like this is just it's. For decades in particular, this uh, state has been run on the explicit rule that its population is surplus and valuable for extractive purposes only. And this is reflected in their public policies. This is reflected in their COVID response. And this is reflected in their urgency to get schools open. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really what you're seeing if you see a community that is really trying to push school opening, you need to really sit down and evaluate 
what the value is of the constituents that are being presided over by these plans, because that to me is one of the biggest indications that whoever is in charge sees their constituents as surplus value, ready to be extracted for capital and valueless as anything other than that. I I mean I think it's though I don't I don't mean for us to be having this conversation in a way to like just eternally bum people out and be like we are all doomed. I think this is actually like important to have as a conversation because already as you were saying earlier like there is really urgent action needed, right? So yeah. talking about some of these decisions that are being made, some of the way these policies are being implemented in these states like West Virginia where you have pretty textbook examples of what not to do, right? These to me present really powerful moments to try and figure out how the left in particular can try and work um, on a hyper-local level to enforce different systems of value. Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think on top of that, it's, it's another one of these things too. We talk, I feel like I, I keep bringing up really frequently how the real big bottom line to like keep keep drawing from everything that you see about uh the covid crisis is that like this is always how it was going to be it was always how it was going to be especially in the united states like because this is how like this is how uh our like structures of power under neoliberalism operate and it is extremely instructive to see like i'll just give another example like um to see how in order to uh, you know, again, like maintain that, uh, mm-hmm. in order, in order to, uh, whether it's like, I don't know, like, uh, reassure people or just literally keep it, keep everything, um, like, like open running. Um, you, you literally see people in the open during this crisis doing things that amount to quite literally lying about, uh, like whether there are cases or not, or what that, what, or at the very least lying about what those cases, uh, mean. Um, actually I'll give two examples. One is that, um, I guess in September, I think it was Monroe County, um, in West Virginia was downgraded, not because the numbers were showing lower, like it was downgraded from, I think red to orange or orange to yellow or something, like orange to yellow, orange to yellow, not because, um, the actual case numbers were showing that, but because a state official said, well, it's trending better. So let's just go ahead and downgrade it now, which means, uh, you know, again, I love to, drive to make home, public health reopen, decisions based on trend forecasting. That means you reopen stuff, which means even if you were by having stuff closed, having a benefit, right, you undo that benefit. The other thing is, you know, speaking of uh, nursing homes and, and carceral institutions as uh, as uh, places where they, you know, they count them as congregate facilities and thus not quote unquote part of the, uh, community. Um, West Virginia university, literally what they started instituting when they reopened, uh, classes for the fall semester, right? What they started instituting was a policy whereby if a student tested positive for COVID, they were literally incentivized to move into a dorm building, a con- a, what they then could count, count as a congregate living facility for the purposes of the state, uh, like incentivized to move into a place where a bunch of other uh, students w- who were active COVID t- cases were kept with the explicit goal of having um, in this one article, which again is from September. So I don't know how bad this got later, but of having, for example, at that time in September, uh, they had 80 students in one building, which were counted for the purposes of the state as one 
COVID case, one single case. Like this is these yeah, are this is not hair splitting again. The the fucking gymnastics that people will go through to protect this. Can I read a quote the, from an the, official about this? They said, quote, we have a population with students who come into a county and all of a sudden that county is flooded maybe with positives and that county is skewed or biased in a way that hurts the county's ability to go to school or play sports or whatever they may do. <laughs> it's blizzard. Oh if there's rain, if there's rain outside, it is biased to say there's a hundred percent chance of rain. <laughs> it may or may not be raining in a few minutes. Yeah, it could be acid <laughs> raining down from the sky. Right. That uh, rain. He said. It quote came from somewhere them. else. It quote hurts them. So we've been trying to figure out what is fair. Yeah. Don't tell me it's raining. Piss on my leg. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, no. And, and this is the thing is like, this is like, why do you think there is such a push for West Virginia schools to stay open? Right. Yeah. Why? Why do teachers need to so urgently go back to work? No one cares about the people's lives who are being put in danger, who is in charge of making these decisions. They only care about the economy. Like, already in this population in West Virginia, because of all the other capitalist extractive processes that this population has been exposed to, like from the, the coal industry or from the chemical industries, we were just saying, like, you already have people who have been poisoned in their homes, in the air, in the water. There's higher rates of of chronic conditions in the state of West Virginia than areas that are less polluted. And we're just going to take this population that we already have like completely abandoned from a public health perspective. Yeah, um, just a huge concentration of capitalism's victims. And basically. just expose them to the virus. And for what? Like, honestly, well, I mean, for what? Well, for profit, this is actually a question. So it. when you say, when you say that they care about the economy, I mean, there's multiple, there's multiple vase. Okay. And right. there's multiple mm -hmm. senses in which, that is happening. So like on the one hand, there there are, you know, firms and they genuinely want, you know, economic um, activity. They want they want purchasing and, and so on. But actually with the schools thing, you know, it's interesting because yet there is, you know, indirectly because you have more parents staying home. There's, you know, um, you, you, you know, have the ability to. Uh, you know, maybe be insulated from have, having to go back to work, uh, especially if there are some sort of uh, benefits there. But then there's also a sense in which, like, public officials, they care about the economy in, in more than one concrete sense. I, I think there's also a sense in which, like, they care about the economy as a sort of totemic uh, object, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's not merely... Um, uh, stay-at-home orders and so on that, that, that like affect uh, public behavior. It's the spread of the virus ends up affecting public behavior. And so to say that like, you know, we, we're trying to like all of these plants, all of the plants from the very beginning were like getting West Virginia back on track and like getting, you know, <laughs> you know, this, this, this state yeah. like back on track, like bringing back economic uh, productivity. It's like, there is a sense in which like the economy is a, like for these officials, like for, for Jim justice is, is also a sublime object. Oh, um, for sure. And, <laughs> and I, I think it's like, it's important to not like reify the economy as, uh, a, a real thing. Um, but it is in part, I think if you look at the way that, uh, these, these sort of decisions are taken, um, yeah, there's a, there's a, a symbolic repertoire here. That's, 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 uh, implicated as well i mean what is the economy at the end of the day but just like a norm 
right? I mean, I think you're totally right, Phil. And it's like, I do think though that that schools in particular are are a really good and inspiring ground just in terms of idea generating, generating yeah. like where we can actually have an impact here because we're not talking about all of this horrible shit because we want you to be depressed. Like we're talking about this because this is what's going on around us and we need to acknowledge that these are the problems that we have to work together as a community as a decentralized community all across the United States and the world, frankly, to try and figure out interventions to try and reassert a a system of value that maybe saves some lives. Well, it's yeah. And and in the immediate like for the immediate moment, this is like exactly what we have been talking about since like. I mean, really, since the pandemic uh, began, but we especially uh, started to hammer home um like as uh, schools were returning across the country, uh, like in the fall, we were saying like, look, explicitly, this is about like, we know that for the most part, like if schools are closed, what happens? Like people are uh, much more likely to stay at home because they have to either take care of their kids or they have to like, uh, you know, like help them do remote remote learning. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's already, that's a huge, that is the, so, for example, if like schools are closed or if there is uh, an effective like strike or something like that, uh, for example, then not just not just teachers, but school staff and everyone, everyone who is part of the like, uh, you know, c- community or whatever that makes up a school, right? Every school has an enormous amount of uh, leverage right now, right? Um, for the for these things. And like these are. I keep thinking about this because uh, specifically, I, kn- I know, for example, in looking into this, it's it's been very clear, for example, that like the governor, like the governor uh, of West Virginia is having like a huge contested uh, relationship with teachers and like the teachers union there, for example, um, right now. And it's, it's interesting to me, for example, that um, as of I think it was uh, yesterday or the day before, like um, the governor of West Virginia made this like uh, big proclamation about like we're <laughs> we're going to. Um, pro- we're like prioritizing and we're going to start very soon um, vaccinating teachers, uh, et cetera, which is obviously good and very important. Like teachers should like teachers are absolutely like that. This is a population of people that need to be prioritized for vaccination. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. if you're telling them to go ver- risk their fucking lives. Uh, Especially a, if they're working classroom. with young children too, um, who won't wear masks. But I, I want to mention, for example, I mean, the vaccines are very important. The vaccines like are uh, they seem by by the data that is available like remarkably uh, safe and effective, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, we while we know that they seem to really help in stopping people from getting extremely ill, right? We do not know if they stop people from transmitting. I mean, here's the thing: if West Virginia vaccinates all of its teachers, we do not know if the vaccine prevents asymptomatic spread of COVID. So you are not going to lose the community spread vector of school openings, right? Of all these children's mi- mixing, of teachers right. coming back to their household. Even if you teachers can all the still teachers, get their families. The school sick. should still be closed. We don't yeah. have any evidence right now that the vaccine does anything other than protect from severe disease. For the protecting, individual vaccinated, yes. For protecting from severe disease is super important. Everyone who can get vaccinated needs to. My conversation with the with virologist Paul uh, Binash yesterday is a really good example of what we are facing in the coming months. I'm going to be very clear. This is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I do not give a shit. And I 
I, when I was talking to Dr. Binash yesterday, I said, you know, what do you think about school reopenings? And there is, you know, no safe way in our current context to open mm-hmm. schools. There is no safe reopening plan at all that I have seen on the table that is safe with our current level of viral spread. And as Dr. Binash pointed out, like we kind of have a problem where we have created the perfect environment for the virus to evolve, for the virus to maybe become resistant to the vaccine before we have rolled it out all the way. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that sounds scary, but we also have the tools to stop it. Teachers have the power to put their foot down. Dr. Binash told me yesterday, we have to stomp this virus out. (laughs) This is someone who has been working on viruses for a long time, who has been making monoclonal antibody therapies for COVID, who dropped his very important HIV AIDS research to work on trying to save us. And there are thousands of scientists like him all over the country and all over the world who have done the same thing. And what we are doing right now is undermining that hard work. But you know what? I'm pretty convinced. I think teachers have a huge role to play here. I think teachers are who can help stomp this out. I think we need to see people refusing to go to work. They need to say, Mm -hmm. you know what? Show me evidence that I'm not going to become asymptomatically infected and return to my family. Show me real evidence because we can't have that yet. We don't know. And we won't know for a while because we are still studying these vaccines. This is a dangerous this is a dangerous pandemic that could become endemic. This is something that we cannot fuck around with. And to be honest, one of the only remaining options we have right now is for teachers to put their foot down and refuse to go in person. We need a lockdown that we can't do it any other way yeah. anymore. I'm coming out as pro-lockdown. Heavily pro-lockdown. Yeah. Wait, I, t- I didn't realize that we weren't pro-lockdown. No, I'm just being explicit in, cl- in case it's not clear. You know, because I, people keep asking me like, well, do you think this plan is safe? Do you think we could make a change <laughs> to this plan to make it safe? And I'm like, Absolutely my, only, not. my yeah. only answer is with the current level of community spread, no fucking way. But I, but I think that the issue is, and I'll say this as somebody who, you know, um, is being asked to go back in a classroom, you know, in a few weeks. Um, I think the thing that is happening is that what people are saying is safety is in fact a different way of referring to risk tolerance, right? Like the, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the goalpost is being moved that it's, it's like, oh, this is safe. Well, in what sense? For whom? Given what level of risk tolerance? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's incredibly easy to do. It's incredibly easy to do. Because I think, I mean, for a lot of people, it's they're quite afraid about their, their jobs and they're atomized. And, uh, but I do, I agree with you, B. I, I think that it's, um, it is, you know, there is potential uh, there that, uh, you know, could could be unlocked. I mean, I think it's not just, yeah, it's not just teachers. It's not just school staff. It's we all need to, we all need to decide to stop suspending disbelief and stop accepting the fantasy of safety that we are, um, 
we are all collectively making the decision to to agree to right now. You know, um, I don't want it to be unsafe. It makes me anxious and sad, but it's not going to make me feel any better to pretend that it is when it isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I do think that we aren't powerless in this situation. We're being made to feel powerless for sure. But tangibly speaking, I don't think we are at the end of the day. Well, but this is why the like, uh, you know, again, lying about uh, the data and what actually what it actually looks like in terms of the spread of the virus is so is such a, uh, you know, like effective demobilizing tool because, Mm -hmm. you know, you like not only not only are people being made to you know, feel like they have to fucking stand up for themselves. They're also being told that they have to call out a lie in order Mm -hmm. to even be able to stand up for themselves. And then they have to, and you know, and then they have to contend not only with um, people who are in power, but they have to contend with people who like believe the believe in like the lie of the Mm -hmm. limited spread, for example, in this instance, in the, in the, in this particular state. Um, And again, acknowledging that, you know, with what we know about how fucked up COVID reporting is like across, uh, across the country, like, you know, this is not an isolated incident. We're not just, we're not just talking about West Virginia here, but we are, you know, again, as like this microcosm of like what is happening. I mean, look, here's what I'm saying. Um, I'll just give an even more, one last even more targeted extremely small scale example um b B and i watched uh uh abby cardis and justin feldman who uh have been on the show who if this if like for instance some of the conversation about um schools has been interesting uh to you on this show like um make make sure you become a patron and uh listen to that episode that we did with them most recently which is called everybody loves school reopenings which is about (laughs) how everyone is just like lying about like anyone who says like oh well the data doesn't support that like schools are are a bad place it's just fucking lying because it's not true um really important conversation but so b and i watched this this conversation that abby uh abby and justin had uh with this group of teachers from west virginia actually um and like i I don't know like just fucking watch it if you can like not even don't even uh like yes watch abby and justin's presentation but like watch the fucking q a because if you if you just if you just like think about this on a on a on like a small scale on a personal level i want to give like one example i'm not going to name any like names or whatever i don't even know who this person's name was so i don't think i could but like one of the teachers for example brings up this question they say my school situation is a little bit different than like a a lot of the other things here we specialize in uh, k to two so like kindergarten to second grade Mm -hmm. so a lot of the kids are so young that they like don't or can't or whatever, wear masks, like they don't wear masks, right? You can't get them to wear masks. They won't wear masks, right? Um, What do I do, right? And you can tell in this person's voice that like, they're not really expecting these two epidemiologists who they're Zooming with to like have a good answer, but still when the best answer that still, that is the best answer that like there could be, be at this like at the at the moment in terms of what they could personally do is like if you can if you can get one or get some like wear an N95 mask and wear some eye protection like goggles or we something. recommend goggles on Gog- the show right <laughs> like when the answer is that which you know this person's definitely like heard a lot before and 
and then you can still hear you know again even assuming there wasn't like uh, it, it sounds like they they weren't maybe expecting an answer but there's like a little bit of hope and you can hear the fucking resignation when like you know it's basically like yeah the answer hasn't changed there's not there's like not a magic bullet right like people are just being put into these situations every day constantly they're fucking clearly beaten down over it like i'm sorry just fuck this country yeah fuck this fucking country that's it i don't know like we we need to massively change everything no i mean i i it's the the feeling of resignation and the feeling that there is no alternative is very very real and i don't think and and it is ultimately you want to talk about counterinsurgency strategy that's Mm -hmm. the effect yeah that's the effect of of so many policies we put in place the way that we the way that employers uh chastise their employees for simply asking questions about things that are pretty normal uh, safety protocol, the way that they moralize to them about the need to, you know, get with the program. I mean, there is just a profound need uh, for people to be radicalized, I think, about what they can demand and what they should be able to demand. And it's it's we we are not we are emphatically not where we need to be uh on that and it's uh it it's a sobering it's a sobering thing but i think it's also like let let the sobriety clarify what is really important which yeah. is not hand wringing about mm-hmm. a bunch of this other stuff but it's really focusing on like how do you <laughs> um i don't know give people the sense that you that they can make these demands yeah well, I feel like that's a good place to leave it for today. Um, I hope this inspires some people to feel like they can ask for bigger things and it's not because there is a lot. There's like so many good, hopeful options that we could do. You know, it's just a matter mm-hmm. of changing our scope of imagination as to what's possible. And that's a lot easier than, you know, I don't know, inventing. Uh, In- inventing an Uber app for ambulances so that they... uh so that so that you don't actually have to wait seven hours. Yeah, it's way easier to figure out how to pay people to stay home than it is to figure out how to turn a parking lot into an emergency room. So yeah. we, I think we should be going for those targeted solutions which produce results rather than <laughs> investing and subsidizing the tent industry. <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, I think we'll leave it there. As always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our work, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get access to all the bonus episodes and patrons get a discount on merch. Until next time, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. All right, bye.